very thankful that the Lord has called us to gather this morning. Very thankful to see faces I haven't seen in a while. Um, and I'm just, I'm just glad that we get to study this text of Scripture together. I uh, want to remind you that we're live streaming out in the front room as well as upstairs in the nursery. So if there's need, um, you don't even have to have a young child. If you just don't want to be in this room with me, you can go upstairs and sit in the nursery by yourself. Um, but I am thankful to see you this morning. I want to be careful this morning. I want to ask your prayer. I just want to ask your prayer that the right words would come out of your pastor's mouth and that you would have ears to hear them. I'm not going to do any preaching about our current day situations, but I do want you to know I mumbled to myself the whole way here in the truck, just as I drove, started saying things maybe I should say that aren't in my notes, that just are what are on my heart right now in light of all the things we're going through. Obviously, masks, no masks, yada, 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 this and everything up in the world. And I'm going to try to say nothing but what the Lord's intended, but I did read a quote this morning, and I want to use it as an intro, from Corey Ten Boom. If you look at the world, you will be distressed. If you look within, you will be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you will be at rest. I am frustrated, but I won't preach on it. But I am frustrated how restless I see Christians being right now. We should be the people with the most peace and the most joy across the planet under the sun because we know that above the sun is him who owns all all history. And I will carefully say this. I don't see it. I see the opposite. I see some of the most distressing countenances I've ever experienced as a pastor from Christians. So may I just ask you, as we look in this book of Jonah, the Lord has words for us this morning, and they are full of joy. And I'm not going to rebuke. I have no rebuke in me right this morning. I just have zeal. And I want you to get far away from where we are in East Tennessee and far away out of the boundaries of this country. And as I've talked to and interacted with friends in India where there's preaching workshops, and I talked to some friends this week among us who work with folks overseas all the time, this is not just a, a time in which the politics in America are intense. What we're dealing with is stuff that people have been dealing with across all continents right now. Are Christians the most at peace across all continents right now? Are we the most excited about the future? And how does this passage have everything to do with it? So just, would you just pray for me as we go forward? Um, I'll pray in a second. Let me get us into this text together. Have you ever had your life like those two baby raccoons just stop? And all of a sudden you go, oh my gosh, I don't know where to go. How did I get here? I was 10 or 11 years old, and um, my dad and I climbed Long's Peak in Colorado, in the Rocky Mountains. I had my Colorado running shoes on, running shoe nerd. Actually, there's some special orthotics inside of them, and my feet hurt a lot. So that's why I'm wearing them. But they have a Colorado flag on them. That's where I grew up, as many of you know. We were climbing Long's Peak. I was 10 years old, 14,259 feet. Interestingly enough, we call it Powell Mountain because the first recorded ascent of Long's Peak was by the surveying party of John Powell. And where I grew up in Fort Collins, I could look up and see Long's Peak every single morning of my life. And so the day my dad said, it's your turn, Jim, do you want to climb it with 
with me. I was pumped. We left at three in the morning. We went to go get to the trailhead. 16 mile hike. You go up, you get past tree line and there's the boulder field. You get past the boulder field and there's this beautiful natural rock, what they call the keyhole. And you go through the keyhole and then there's a very dangerous ledge up to the very top to the peak of the mountain. Well, I will tell you, I made it all the way through the keyhole, but I did not make it to the top. And it was not for lack of wanting to. My dad observed that my scrawny little 10-year-old body was definitely suffering from altitude sickness. I was not thinking straight. I wasn't feeling well in my belly. I wasn't walking as clearly as I should have, carefully as I should have. So dad said, you're done. We're stopping here. 500 feet from the top, my friend John, not my brother John, my friend John and his dad, they went to the summit and I could hear them talking. They got to sign the book that said they were there. I didn't get to sign the book that, w- that said I was there. But I was there but I had to stop. And so my dad said, Jim, I want you to eat this. It's the first time that I remember him being so excited to hand me all sorts of candy bars and everything. Just eat this, eat this. He said, when we get down below tree line, when we get close to that boulder field, you'll feel better. And I remember descending, we got to the boulder field and I said, hold that thought. And I ran behind a boulder and I began to feel better. And it was in that moment that I realized that I had not been operating at normal capacity. Never mind what I thought. I had a moment. I was stopped. My body physically stopped, and I became keenly aware that the other people in our hiking party, they'd been feeling a lot better than I was the whole time. And I kind of came out with a skip and a jump and said, let's go do it. And they said, sorry, thunderstorms, time to go down. Y'all been feeling this good the whole time? Sometimes in the stopping comes the recognizing. And that's what happened to me that day. It's a pattern for the Christian. It's a pattern we see in this book. And as we look in this scripture, we're going to see God stops Jonah. And in this moment where he's been running, 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 he finally stops. That's when he has his moment of recognition. And that's what we're going to look at here in a moment. And I want you to think with me about in your life how God has maybe had big stops or small stops to cause you to just recognize Let me use some small stop illustrations just to pull you in. As you know, I was a college soccer referee for about a dozen years. I loved it. It was a side project till it got to be so toxic that I hated it. For a while, it was just fun to be out in the middle of collegiate competition. I remember the day in which two young lady athletes, both the most aggressive players on the field, I could see it before it happened. They were running toward each other. Each of them was going to try to use their head to pop the ball over the other person. And they were both running like this toward that ball. And I positioned myself as a referee to be able to see who fouls who first because it's coming. And it didn't matter because they basically hit head to head and just collapsed. More than 100 stitches were involved between the two athletes. It's the only time in my career refereeing that an ambulance drove onto the field to take both athletes off in the same ambulance. There were 25, 30 minutes left in the match which means by NCAA rule, we couldn't call the game over. We had to continue to play. But do you know what had happened for myself as well as the other 22 athletes on that field? They had, they had the game stopped for about an hour. The rest of the match was almost inconsequential. We don't care anymore. It's just a game. Those were our, our, our friends. Are they going to survive? What sort of brain damage is there? What, what's happened? They did. I got pictures from both coaches within 48 hours. 
But the whole experience was different. There was a small stop, and it changed every athlete's perception of what was important. That's a small stop. Or have you ever sent a text to the wrong person accidentally? That's a small stop in the middle of a day, isn't it? Where you, you write something that you thought was for person A about person B, and you sent it to person B. Small stop, but you have a heart attack, and you go about your day differently. Maybe you go about the relationship differently. It's just a small stop, though, where you recognize something. You're starting to slander. You're not being a good friend, yada, yada, yada. Maybe you have plans for a day. Maybe I have plans for a day, but there's a small stop in the morning before you start that day. Maybe my wife and I have poor words for one another, and we hurt each other's feelings, and the whole day is completely different now. All the hopes I had, the plans I had, I can't function because something caused me to stop. I'm sick to my stomach to have to do so, and if you ever see me on a Sunday not want to preach, it's probably because something happened in my house because my day stopped before the day started. Those are all small stops, but what about a big stop? When God just really puts the brakes on for you, we have college friends, sister in Christ, she's about my age, suffering from, from cancer many years into it. We went to see her and her husband for their 20th anniversary a few weeks ago, but what was most profound to me was her husband, Nick, who's a pastor just like I am, who's 42 just like I am, he had a heart attack from all the stresses of taking care of his wife and being in ministry. That's a big stop. And we sat in like a gazebo there in Gatlinburg and reconnected after 20 years and just said, what's going on? That, that God stopped you. I got permission from Whit Lammons to just use his name to mention it right now. Our brother Whit, biking over here a month ago, Tannery Knobs, fractured vertebrae in his neck, all the tests that came back negative for the first five, six hours of testing and how terrified he was that he may never walk again. That's a big stop. And as I talked to him and got, got his permission to mention his name, he said, Jim, it's a part of my processing sanctification. Okay. Think about your own life. Has God stopped you? Have you ever had a big stop? Do you have daily small stops? Do you stop and recognize? When I was in college, I worked as a camp counselor, and it was 2 o'clock in the morning. We were going to bed late. We had our staff meeting about all the activities of the day, and my boss said, we're going to do three-word prayers because we're all so tired, we're going to go to bed. You know what my three words were when it came around the circle to me? I said, make us humble. And the minute I said, make us, because of course you're a camp counselor. You know, all the little girls think you're cute. You're a college guy. Uh, I mean, just make us humble. We're amazing. We're teaching good things. We're leading them on ropes courses. We're awesome. Make us humble, I prayed. To which my boss said, by our choice, as fast as it could come out of his mouth. After the prayer was over, he explained to us, do you realize that if you say, God, make us humble, he can do anything required to stop you in your pride. Now, I trust the Lord, so does King David, when he says, I'd rather fall into the hands of the living God than any man. But if we're not humbling ourselves and stopping by our choice, has God stopped you? Can he bend creation to stop his own? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And I'm going to jump us right, that's all the introduction you're going to get. I'm going to jump us right into the text. But let's stand together and I want you to read with me this prayer of Jonah when God stops him. 
Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 17. This is the word of God. Please listen. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet shall I look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Father, would you hear us now as we ask for your help in these next 20-some minutes? Would you bless us as we study your word? Help us to grow. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. So God stops Jonah dead in his tracks. In fact, the Hebrew of chapter 1, verse 17, your, ver your Bible probably has the word and in front of it. It could be the word but, right? It's a pause. But the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. That's how God stops Jonah. That word, that verb appointed, it happens four times in the whole book. Every single time it's God appointing something from nature to do his bidding. Here in, ch in this chapter, chapter 1, it's the fish. Chapter 4, we have a plant, we have a worm, and we have the wind. All are appointed by God to do something. Why does God use a fish? It's a good question. As AJ said his first Sunday, let's not act like this is an expected thing to happen. It's not expected. Why a fish? Well, apparently, what this means to the reader is, had he been thrown overboard and the sea go to an immediate calm, I imagine he would have found very kind and compassionate and helpful sailors. Apparently, that wouldn't have been enough for him to repent and turn. Or, the sailors were afraid the boat was going to break up, so why wouldn't God just let the boat break apart and Jonah float to, sea, uh, float to shore on one of the pieces of the wreckage with the other sailors? Well, because apparently that wouldn't have been enough. God appoints a fish to stop Jonah from running because God has the entire world at his disposal. He uses his creature in his sea to stop his prophet. James Montgomery Boyce in his sermon, it was rather fun to read because obviously he's, he's with Jesus now, so it was, a, it was a while back. But he had actually written into Encyclopedia Britannica. Do you remember those big, large volumes? Did you know that instead of just Googling something, there was once upon a time, if you read Encyclopedia Britannica and you didn't get the information you wanted, you could write a letter to Encyclopedia Britannica and ask for additional information that they would send to you for said research project. So Montgomery Boyce actually writes a letter to Britannica and says, is this possible? to which he receives a volume of information. And I want to quote what he was told. The objection that a whale could not swallow Jonah simply because the throat of a whale is too small arose from a failure to distinguish between the Greenland whale, which does have a very small throat, and the sperm whale, which has an enormous mouth, throat, and stomach. 
An average sperm whale might have a mouth 20 feet long, 15 feet high, and 9 feet wide. Whalers have sometimes found whole squid of this size in a dead whale's stomach. As to whether a man could survive in a whale's stomach, there would be air to breathe of a sort. It it is needed to keep the animal afloat, but there would be great heat, approximately 104 to 108 degrees Fahrenheit. Unpleasant contact with the animal's gastric juices might easily affect the skin, but the juices would not digest living matter. Otherwise, they would digest the whale's own stomach. Thank you, Encyclopedia Britannica. And ooh, did you know that in 1891, the star of the East whaling ship harpooned a sperm whale, and in the melee, sailor James Bartley disappeared. The whale was killed, drawn to the side of the ship. 24 hours later, when the stomach was opened up, the missing sailor was found unconscious but alive. 1891. Okay, so this is not mere fiction. It's not just possible fiction. This is historically described to us in this book, and it is historically verified, but all the verification we need as Christians is that the Word of God tells us it's true. Secondarily, in Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus talks of his own life, and he says, I am literally going to die and go three days into the grave, and I'm going to ascend and come back to life. He says, I'm going to do the same thing that happened to Jonah. It historically happened with Jesus. Jesus says it historically happened with Jonah. We don't need anything else. But we have to be really careful of not falling prey to poor biblical hermeneutics, bad Bible interpretation, and thinking that the story is mostly about the fish. It's not. It's sad. It's tragic, some commentators have said, that this story is known mostly for its connection to a whale. As Thomas Carlyle once said, he said, I was so obsessed with what was going on inside the whale, I missed the drama inside of Jonah. And that's what the Bible wants us to see. Jonah is being pursued and stopped by the God of relentless grace, and the story is about that. I want you to imagine with me, Jonah has, has been an obedient prophet. He has to have been. He just doesn't like the current assignment God gave to him. Just imagine with me what it must have been like inside of him when he was finally fully stopped from running from God. You probably don't have to imagine you ever been stopped? You already profess faith in the Lord. You know him. You love his gospel, but you struggle in a sinful world. What's it like inside of you when you get exposed? Well, it kind of answers the question as to why the Bible here changes its literature form. It goes from narrative to poetry. We should always ask ourselves, why did the Bible do that when we see it happen? It happens in different places in the Bible. The book of Exodus chapter 15, after the whole narrative goes all the way to crossing the Red Sea and being rescued, in what form of literature is Moses' celebration and his prayer? It's poetry. When Hannah is longing to, to have a child born to her and she goes and she throws herself at the priest's feet before Eli the priest and then she celebrates because God hears her prayer, what, what form of literature? It's poetry. Here we have this Deep poetic prayer. Poetry is art. Poetry is deep like music. This is the poetry of weakness from the heart of one who's been stopped by God. As John Calvin said, it's as if Jonah prayed as though in hell. And so let's just look at this poem and this prayer. I'll kind of fly through it. Verse 1, notice Jonah prays to the Lord his God. He's been running from the Lord. He now turns to Verse 2, 
I called out to the Lord in my distress. Notice, Jonah does not call out to the, to the Lord in maturity and repentance and a proper understanding of his guilt. Jonah just cries out to God because it's all fallen apart. He's just distressed. He says the belly of the fish is like the belly of Sheol or the grave or hell. He feels like he's buried alive by the God who owns his days. Verse 3, he says, It felt like the Lord himself hurled me into the sea. To be true about it, it was the sailors who hurled him, but Jonah who knew who it actually was. You cast me into the deep. Your waves, your currents pass over me. Verse 4, he's terrified. He's terrified. He says, I'm driven away from your sight. The word driven is the same exact word that describes Adam and Eve being driven out of the garden in the book of Genesis. So, so, so ironically, Jonah has been running from the Lord and feeling nothing. Now the Lord buries him, so to speak, and he feels the Lord has driven him away. Isn't that ironic? Yet he's not had the Lord drive him away. The Lord's never been closer to Jonah. He's experiencing the imminence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, which means there's no distance, no abandonment at all. Now I want you to notice me, the, the prayer itself, it is a prayer not about his time in the fish. It is a prayer about him drowning. Understand that. It's really important for us. I preached this book back in 2008 at the church plant in Pennsylvania and was asked, therefore, afterwards to preach to a bunch of RUF students at Lehigh University at their spring break camp. And I found these notes from that camp preaching experience. Corey and I had been watching a documentary, uh, a news story, in, I guess it was 2008, and we watched an interview of the only known individual to jump from the Golden Gate Bridge and survive and live to speak about it. So I, was, I wrote these notes kind of the week of the camp, I guess, is when I saw this interview. And as this man retold his story, he said, you know, when I jumped, I was midair and I realized I did not want life to end. So I tried to go in feet first, which plunged me deeper than words can describe. And it all went black. He said what was up, what was down, he, he couldn't tell anything. All he said about his survival was that he looked everywhere for any sign of light. And he just tried to swim there. He tried to choose life, but in the moment he was wondering if it was too late. I remember listening to that interview and, and it just made all of this Jonah story come to life all the more. What did it feel like to Jonah? He tells us, verse 5 and 6, it felt like suffocation in the darkness, in the breathlessness of the sea. It felt like the deep surrounded him to take his life. It felt like he was bouncing across the craggy mountains at the bottoms of the sea. It felt like seaweed was wrapped around his neck. It felt like he was so far gone that the earth was going to close him up. He says it in verse 6, the bars closed upon me forever. It felt like before he knew death, he was in the prison of death. It felt like, verse 7, his life was fainting away. I just find this to be interesting. It's the poetry of one who'd driven himself down, 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 away from the presence of the Lord. Now, we can't just take his experience and just overlay it upon our lives and say, aren't we all like Jonah? God has mercifully 
not caused a storm to throw me overboard and caused me to drown, even though it was merciful for God to do so for Jonah. So we got to be really careful not to just allegorize our lives connected to Jonah's experience, but what we can do, what we can do, I think, is we can borrow the words and the tenor of his prayer when God stops us. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. What would a poetic declaration to your God look like as you recognize he stopped you from destroying yourself? He stopped you from running from his presence because he's merciful. What would it sound like if you got your journal out and you stopped long enough to try to write poetically about the kind of rescue he's given to you, the darkness that you're capable of, the darkness you may have been pulled out of perhaps? Would it sound anything like this? When we planted the church in Pennsylvania, the Lord led us to have a vision statement and we wanted to be a church for the broken. It's one of the things we said. Lord, would you make a a church of the broken for the broken who find their hope in the one who restores brokenness, basically. That was the the cool way to talk back in the early 2000s was broken, broken, broken. So we just killed it with our vision statement. But do you know what God did? What kind of people do you think were in that church for those eight years that I was their pastor? It was awful hard. It was really hard. Because God honored the wishes, we ended up being a group of people that looked and sounded a whole lot like this prayer. And I think that that's the same thing we should expect him to do here. We want to ask for God to mature us. That's our vision statement, right? That we would present everyone mature in Christ. Well, where do people start? In the doldrums of immaturity. And immaturity for a believer in a world with all these inputs of trial that we're all going through. We would not be embellishing, I don't think, people of God, if we started to write our prayers and they didn't sound a lot like Jonah's and it would be beautiful if they did, would it not? And that's why we want to call you to community. That's why we're not going to let COVID or anything like that separate us from being in relationship because we must. We must go to the place where we can actually say, see Jim, stop. And when Jim stops... He looks around him and there's other people that are going to interpret life with him so that he's not alone in the stopping. But the God of all mercy and grace who relentlessly pursues us, he stops us to rescue us, doesn't he? This isn't a depressing prayer. It's a phenomenal prayer because in the stopping, we see the Lord save. And so really what I want to do is show you how this prayer has got salvation just completely, thoroughly embedded in it. It's glorious. See, every reference to salvation in this book, we have to understand, it is not referencing Jonah being spit out on dry land. Obviously, it was recorded after he was on dry land, but the text itself says this is what he prayed before dry land, before he knew he would be vomited up. Ew. According to the text, Jonah is in his situation. He is stopped. He is stuck in it. And yet in that place, he says salvation is owned by the Lord. People of God, this is something you and I need dramatically. Back to my previous comment, mumbling in the truck on the way here, Lord, help me only to say what I should say. Do you know I hear a lot of Christians saying salvation will belong to the Lord when when our circumstances will all change? And I don't hear a lot of people breathing out the refreshing, God-glorifying truth of the matter, which is we are saved right now. We are free right now. We're unafraid right now. 
That's what happens in this prayer. So let's look at these salvation references. In verse 6, Jonah says, You brought me up, you brought up my life from the pit. Isn't that an interesting description? Your life is brought up from the pit. How has Jonah's life been described to this point in this book? Not upward, downward. Remember? Chapter 1, verse 3, he went down to Joppa. Chapter 1, verse 5, he went down into the hole of the ship to sleep out of his depression and his running from God. Chapter 2, verse 6, he's just said it in his prayer. I went down to the bottom of the sea. I bounced on the, on the bottom. And then when he describes the rescue, you have brought up my life from the pit. It's salvation language. And notice verse 4 and verse 7 both reference the holy temple of the Lord. Isn't that a unique thing to reference all things considered? He's thinking about the holy temple of the Lord in the bowels and the gastric juices of a fish in the utter darkness. He should be screaming like a baby raccoon. And he's thinking about the holy temple of the Lord. But we know why. He says in verse 7, I remembered the Lord. And I knew that apart from any of my circumstances changing, that I'm not alone. I've ascended to the very presence of the Lord. He is with me. That's the temple language. The temple was where God was. Then in verse 8, he speaks out like a proverb. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Well, commentators will say, who's he talking about when he says those who pay regard to vain idols? Well, maybe he's talking about the sailors. Yeah, but the sailors didn't know anything about steadfast love. So he's probably talking about Israelites like him who seek after vain things over and over and over that are meaningless and they run in the opposite direction. Those are the ones who've known steadfast love. So here's what he's saying. Steadfast love is that Hebrew word hesed, the unique word for the God to man descending, surrounding, wrap my children up, love of the heavenly father. Here's what he's saying. Verse five, my head was wrapped up with weeds unto death and now I know I've been forgiven and wrapped up by the forgiving love of my father. No wonder he ends his prayer with a shout that salvation belongs to the Lord or literally salvation is owned by the Lord. Only then is he vomited up to dry land when he's already declared that his full salvation and rescue is already done because of who God is and that he's not alone. This is the poetry of the broken, even as it's the poetry of the redeemed. You don't get one without the other in Christianity. It's the celebration that salvation is owned by the Lord while we honestly say to God, but I need saving. And what is the gospel? Well, here's where I'm going to close up. The gospel is pictured so beautifully for us in this passage. And I don't want to get too technical, but for those of you Bible students, you may have heard me reference typology as a way to read the Bible. Let me just explain this real quickly, and it'll be our conclusion. Typology is an interpretive lens in which we realize that there are characters in the Bible who are a type of Christ. They are a shadow of Christ. And in the realm of typology, literarily speaking, Jonah is the type, Christ is the anti-type, or he's not the shadow, he's the fulfillment. Let me explain. In verse 5, Jonah says, It felt like I have been driven away from the Lord's presence before I was resurrected, so to speak, to then go declare his gospel to the nations. Did, did Jonah actually get driven from the Lord's presence? No. 
Who did? Who yelled at the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did you drive me from your presence? But Jesus himself. See, Jonah felt destroyed, but was not destroyed. Jesus went to the depths of hell away from the presence of the Lord for the rescue of those who would receive the gospel that he would declare upon his resurrection, upon him getting spit back up from the grave. Jonah is a type of Christ. Jesus is the one who descended into the place of wrath and hell and death and God's forsakenness that Jonah and you and I never have to go. What do you say in the middle of the trial to such a God? Well, I think you pray in thanks. I think you announce what he's done in the middle of the trial. And then I think that in order for us to find the words, we probably have to stop. I'm not very good at writing poetry. I've never written a song. But I know that if I tried, I'd have to stop my frenetic pace to try to find words to describe the depth. Christian, if you won't stop, I am praying God will stop you. If I won't stop, please pray that God will stop me. Maybe then if we're stopped, all of us will start to sound a little different. And the most unifying thing that we will declare is salvation belongs to our God. There is no salvation at all if it is not by God's total mercy and relentless grace to stop us and show us his way of rescue. Christian, I pray that even before we take the Lord's Supper now, make this a small stop and then let's receive with boldness a sign and seal of what's been purchased for us by him who went where we don't have to go. Let me pray. Lord, would you be glorified as we have let your words percolate and penetrate? Holy Spirit, help. Help us to sound zealously like rescued believers, even in the midst of the things we're asking you to rescue us out of. Lord, would you help us each to stop long enough for family units, would you help us to help our children stop long enough? For those who are single in this community, would they be surrounded by friends, brothers and sisters who help them stop? Would we share stories like how Jonah's declared what went through him, what he went through, such that together we would give words of interpretation guided by your servant and your spirit here, and we would celebrate, and we count it all joy and we would be free, and we would believe truth, and we would not be shaken. Stop us long enough for the recalibration to happen. I pray this in Jesus' name.